So I have something crazy to tell you about today. I stumbled on something on Instagram that I wanted to know if you've seen before. Have you seen... Um... <laughs> it's not that funny, but it is. <laughs> You're funny. Have you seen Deep Tom Cruise? No. What is this? <laughs> Okay, explain it to me. Go to hashtag Deep Tom Cruise. Just deep, like deep, D E E P. Yes. Okay. Well, first you have to describe it to me. Um, I don't remember the first one that came into my feed. And by the way, listeners, do not ask me why Deep Tom Cruise came up as a suggested reel, but it did. <laughs> and I also can't explain why I clicked on it, but I did. And the first one, I think, was he was talking about something like life related and i thought to myself like this seems like a crazy tom cruise thing so then i went to the hashtag and there's like videos of tom cruise playing guitar and singing there's videos of him doing magic tricks stop <laughs> go check it out okay is it an account no it's a hashtag okay i think it's a tiktok account that's why i'm surprised it came into my atmosphere because oh you my know, god see tom cruise I'm sorry. I know he's wacko, but why is he so hot? <laughs> okay, watch, why? watch a video of him singing. Just watch a video of him singing. <laughs> okay, stop, Tom. Stop. So now Google deep Tom Cruise. <laughs> I can't with this guy. I cannot. It's not real. It's a deep, deep fake. Oh, my. <laughs> oh my god it's terrifying right oh my god that is deeply terrifying <laughs> it's a dude who has been able to like digitally manipulate his face to look like tom cruise's face yeah and it's so real you guys i know everyone's gonna go look it up go look it up it's so real. Now, I will say, there were a couple videos that I watched that it looked like it could have been him, but then some of those guitar videos, he looks very young. Mm -hmm. And I thought, he is kind of a wacky dude, so maybe, like, he put on a lot of makeup to look younger than he actually is. It's a filter. Maybe <laughs> yeah. Tom Cruise is using the Tom Cruise filter. He's using the Tom Cruise filter. The internet is a crazy place. It is. It really is. It's like the Wild West. It really is. Yep. Welcome to the Viola-Centric Podcast. We are two curious violists creating a safe place to have authentic and challenging conversations in the professional music world. I'm Liz. And I'm Steph. Let's jump in the deep end. So I read those articles you sent me about imposter syndrome. Mm, yeah. Very interesting. Right. This idea that imposter syndrome is a term that was developed prior to considering the systemic reasons why anyone other than males, particularly white males in positions of power, experience feelings of self-doubt. And we can all identify with this idea of imposter syndrome, right? This concept that there's something that you're doing out there in the world that you feel self-doubt that you're actually qualified to be doing it. I think musicians will immediately resonate with this concept because I think we all have that experience in performance at some point in our lives, multiple times. 
But in these articles, it's particularly referencing leadership, and it's pointing out that imposter syndrome is heavily weighed towards describing women. And for the purposes of these articles, they are talking particularly about women of color. So I just want to make sure that I'm very clear about that. And it's not that it can't resonate with us, but there's an extra layer of that that actually we can't even speak to that particular experience. But the idea that any time a woman in a work environment that fosters this culture expresses any sort of limiting belief or self-doubt, anxiety about doing their job, the default reaction is to say, well, you're struggling with imposter syndrome and here's how you can deal with that, rather than addressing the need for systemic change within the workplace culture. And then the other article you sent was their response to try and change that workplace culture. And it's so interesting how that sort of dovetails from some of the things we talked about last episode with diversity and changing the system to reflect the various demographics of the people who live in this country now. And this is sort of a microcosm of that, it seems. It feels that way anyway. I don't know. What did you think? Yeah, well, I have a couple thoughts about this. And the first one is, I know that a lot of us in music have this feeling that we are imposters, or Mm -hmm. we're not qualified to do what we're doing. But I wonder if it's a little bit more objective in our field, because we are actually doing something that is quantifiable. (laughs) Yeah. Does that make sense? Like either you can play the music accurately, or you can't play the music accurately. Either you make mistakes or you don't make mistakes. It seems like it's a little bit easier to evaluate someone's efficacy at what we do. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? We have our own opinions about the breakdown in some of the audition process. But the only evaluation in that audition process is the way you sound. There is no evaluation of your gender or race or anything like that because it's behind a screen. And so we do have that very quantifiable assessment of someone's ability in that setting. And I think because of that, we've been very fortunate since the early 1970s to just see more and more and more women in particular. BIPOC representation is still very, very low in classical music. But when you look around, I don't know, I think there are more women in orchestras than men in some cases, right? At the very least, it's very even. And the reason for that is there's no assessment on whether or not that person is a man or a woman or non-binary. It's just like however you play behind that screen. So we're a little ahead in that way. I can't imagine that discrimination in the workplace when you have to interview and then trying to escalate up to a position of power within those workplaces is behind us in that way. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Now, what I can see, though, is an execution of the job. I can't put myself first person in this position, but I could see how someone of color may feel like when they speak up or when they voice their opinion in a work situation, even in our work situation, they might be reluctant to do so. For sure. Even when they're qualified. Yeah. And that's the thing is once we get beyond the screen all of those workplace dynamics then come into play. So some work environments we have are very open and I think are embracing different opinions. Something we said last week, basically when someone tells you their experience, you believe them and then you work with them to figure out how to make that experience better, which is ultimately what that article about changing the workplace environment 
says is that one of the things you can do is gather someone's experience by talking to them and then see what you can do within the structure to change it, not to get them to do something to help themselves. The other thought I had was, I, and this is something I've been thinking a lot about actually with respect to female leadership over the course of the last 20 or 30 years, which is I think our sisters who did a ton of work to elevate to positions of leadership in and outside of music. But for the moment, I'll just stick with music and I'll talk about conductors. I think that the norm 30 years ago when they were training was to emulate as much masculinity as they could because that was how they were going to get into positions of power. Mm -hmm. I believe that is the same for female executives out there in the corporate world based on my mentors and what they've had to overcome. And I, I'm very blessed to have at least one person in my life coming up through that time who has managed to maintain a lot of her feminine wisdom. That's the way I would describe it. You know, the way she leads, the way she talks with employees, the way she talks with clients. She hasn't embraced this like hyper masculinity, which I think is really impressive considering how insanely difficult that must have been in the 90s. But these days, I feel like there are those of us stepping up into leadership roles and we're interested in leading from our feminine side. We don't have to be hyper masculine to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think there's room for that. And that helps to change culture. I loved that statistic in there. This is according to the American Express 2019 State of Women-Owned Business Report. Women of color make up 89% of the net new women-owned businesses per day, despite only comprising 39% of the total female U.S. population, which I just think is very interesting because now you have this scenario. And even though access to capital is harder for them, they're like more willing to go out on a limb and step out and create their own system within businesses. Mm -hmm. But it's really interesting to me to think about the potential ripple effect of that, that we have all these women and a lot of women of color choosing to go out and start their own enterprises. What will that look like for workplace culture as a whole as those businesses grow? Mm -hmm. And the reason why lots of those women do that is because they don't feel welcome in the traditional workplace. Exactly. And that's a really interesting thing to talk about because we have been talking about how individuality is what's missing from the orchestral realm. Right. And if we're asking people to be individuals and to bring their full selves, Jodi Ann Burry and Rashika Tolshin, those are the two authors of these two articles that Liz and I are talking about. Jodi Ann says, I'm being asked to bring my full self to these environments. But when I do that, it's not palatable right. to the people who are in charge. That stuck with me too. And so what can we do to make everyone feel safe enough to speak up and to absorb their ideas as valid ideas? What can we do to make them feel welcome and like they are a part of it? Yeah. The articles uh, referencing imposter syndrome and this idea of it being rooted in self-doubt kind of does lend itself into part of the conversation that we had with your friend Brian, who is an amazing person. Right? Oh, man. I am so glad he was willing to talk with us. Love that guy. We lost touch for way too long. And I'm just reminded just what a charismatic, yeah, thoughtful, deep person he is. Yeah. 
And I'm so glad that we've reconnected in this way. He showed up as his whole self for the full conversation that we had with him. There were so many very honest perspectives. He's passionate about creativity. He's passionate about education. We talk about this element of fear and creativity. It was just a very moving at times and inspiring conversation. Yeah. Let us know what you think. Enjoy this conversation with my friend and Liz's new friend, yes. Brian Balmages. Hello all, Liz and Steph here. As you know, Liz and I choose our sponsors because we really and truly value authenticity. We can talk most easily about things that we love and use regularly, which is why Potter Violins is such a natural partnership. Yes, Steph and I both have been taking our violas to Potters for years because we know they're a shop that really knows about violas. Their luthiers are some of the best in the country, and I trust them completely with my wooden baby. And not only that, but I'm actually bow shopping right now, which can be overwhelming. But I always go to Potters first because I trust them to help me find the perfect one for my instrument and playing style. Yep, both Steph and I found our violas there. Bottom line is that we both love the Potters team, and we're thrilled to welcome them as a Season 2 sponsor. If you're interested in learning more about what they offer, you can find them at potterviolins.com and at potterviolins on Instagram. Season two of the Viola-centric podcast is sponsored by the ArcRest, a wonderfully resonant shoulder pad solution for violinists and violists. The ArcRest shoulder pad features a comfortable foam pad, allowing increased freedom of movement over traditional shoulder rests. You know, I had been playing with significant shoulder pain and the ArcRest turned out to be just what I needed to create an ease of mobility. And now I play virtually pain-free. Yes, and I switched because I was searching for a more vibrant sound. The ArcRest's pad provides for less dampening, freeing up resonance for a fuller sound. In fact, Liz and I are so in love with our ArcRests that we decided to compose a haiku in their honor. <laughs> so Liz, you want to go first? I would love to. Delicate contact makes space for deep resonance. My viola sings. It's lovely. Thank I love you. that. How about yours? Okay, mine is playing without pain, freeing my mind and body, sound of resonance. Love that. If you would like more information, you can visit thearcrest.com. That's T-H-E-A-R-C-R-E-S-T dot com. It's Balmages, yes? It is, all day long. Perfect. Okay, great. And it's Liz, right? It is Liz. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so our guest today is Brian Balmages, who is an award-winning composer and conductor whose music has been performed throughout the world with commissions ranging from elementary schools all the way to professional orchestras. He is a trumpet player, a self-taught pianist, and possibly the most important part, a good friend of our very own Stephanie Knutson from JMU, where they both went to school. Dukes. <laughs> Go Dukes. Yeah. Go Dukes, I guess. <laughs> He is a truly prolific current day composer. And in fact, I've had the joy of coaching several of your pieces in viola sectionals all over Fairfax County here in Northern Virginia. So it's a lot of fun actually for me to put a face and personality to the name that I recognized on all of that music. Welcome to the Viola Centric Podcast, Brian. Well, thank you. I'm just excited that I've written music that requires viola sectionals. Me too. <laughs> that alone is like epic. <laughs> it's the truth. Kids love to play your music. 
It's a joy to write for them. It's a joy to write for all age levels. And what people don't realize is that I actually started writing much more high-level music. And Steph knows this because I was writing for all the groups at JMU. But then what happened was all these people, a lot of them were music ed majors. Mm -hmm. And they started to graduate. And they went off and taught their elementary, middle school, and high school groups. And they were like, hey, we loved what we played of yours in college, but my kids can't play it. Would you like to write something for my kids? And so I was like, okay, I'll try. Some of it was, uh, what's a good word? Garbage was a good word. Yeah, some of it was terrible, right? Nonsense. No, no, very sense. Uh, some of it was terrible when I first started, but I didn't let failure, I didn't let that get in my way. And I just kind of figured a way to fight through that. It's very grassroots then how you ended up sort of being really known for writing great music for student orchestras. It was word of mouth at first. What is it that you love the most about doing it for young people? So for me, I kind of view my career as like a massive musical mutual fund. And what I mean by that is as we get into these careers of ours, you look at how can I be the most stable doing what I love doing? How can I diversify the most? And so it began with me writing all upper level stuff, but all these people were saying, can you write for younger groups? At first, I was a little bit worried because I thought, I don't want to get pigeonholed there. I don't want to be the guy that only writes for younger players. So I went through this whole process of asking myself, do I want to do this? And it's funny because so many of your listeners will be able to relate this to their professional lives or their gigging lives because it's like, do I want to become known as the freelance person? Or do I want to become known as the person who just plays weddings or who just does this? Mm -hmm. And you kind of have to ask yourself. I thought I wanted to be like these big, huge composer names, people like Jennifer Higdon. I was looking at these conductors. There was Marin Alsop doing these things. All these just incredible people out there. On the band side, there was this guy, uh, David Maslanka, who was this incredibly prolific and deeply emotional guy. And I thought, I don't want to be this young band and string person. I want to be like that until I realized I'm nothing like them at all. That's not who I am. Mm -hmm. And so I've got to figure out a way to allow me to be myself and not be who the college institutions tell me I should be, not be the kind of player that I was told, well, this is how you play and this is how you, because once you graduate and you start taking auditions and doing it, everybody can play. Mm -hmm. It's a question of what makes you, you, what makes you unique. And I realized what makes me unique is the fact that I actually enjoy writing for little kids. My wife was teaching little kids, so she was telling me what to do. And for the sake of my marriage, I did it. It's true. I always joked around. Once I started getting prolific in the young market of band and strings, I said the greatest thing I ever did was like I married my target market. (laughs) Very smart. It is smart. It is smart. (laughs) And so I kind of realized that this is just, it's who I am. And I started to do it and I started to enjoy it. I really did. Even if you said to me, I'll allow you to be a full-time, full orchestra composer for the top symphonies in the world, I would say no, because that's not all of who I am. Do I love writing really difficult music? Sure I do. And I've had great premieres by some wonderful ensemble. The Baltimore Symphony premiered some of my stuff um, years ago, and recently the United States Army Band premiered a piece of mine. These are great things, but at the same time, I love the release that I get of writing for younger players, and I love that it takes me in different directions, which is also why I love writing for orchestra. Orchestras can do things that bands cannot, nor will they ever be able to do, and vice versa. Yeah. So it's nice to be able to leave one, go to the other, I can even exist in the one and flirt around with different grade levels, different instrumentation, whatever it might be. And I love the opportunity to be able to do all those things. And that's a big part of how I've kind of structured my career so that really, no matter what happens, you can still be successful. Yeah. It comes down to like being flexible. So you have your big purpose, which for you maybe is composing 
it's music, it's connecting to people through music, go down to the short term goals that kind of build up to fulfilling that big major goal. And if you're flexible in those, okay, well, maybe this one part didn't work out, but you can just shift it a little bit so that it's still fulfilling your big purpose in life. But it might be a little different than the way you thought you would start out. That kind of is what happened this past year when everything shut down. I was like, okay, what are we going to do? I started off by putting up little inspirational videos for people just to keep them going. And then we formed this group called the Creative Repertoire Initiative. There was Stephen Bryant in there. He's done some orchestral writing. Frank DeKelly, uh, Eric Whitaker, John Mackey, Michael Doherty, Jennifer Jolly was in there. Alex Shapiro was in there. All these great people. And you can imagine just hanging out in Zoom rooms with these guys for (laughs) once a week and just chatting. It became like a support group. And then it realized, you know what, we can create these new adaptable models for adaptable music. And then that led into this e-curriculum thing that Alex had put together, which led me writing a piece that met the needs of middle and high school kids who might be at home recording remotely, but not just making virtual videos and stuff, but actually creating collaborative pieces together in which they were engaging each other. I can still be who I am and reinvent some of the things that I'm doing, but still be relevant. Mm. Yeah. I think that at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do, no matter how the world shifts. And it's shifted. And I think we can all agree that the musical landscape is forever changed. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yep. It is forever changed. The way people are purchasing music, it was on like a 10-year trajectory and COVID massively accelerated all of that. So then you ask yourself, well, how can I adapt? How can I shift to continue to be relevant despite everything around me that's challenging or changing? And I think that as musicians is one of the biggest things that we need to constantly address as being relevant. Oh, this is so great. I'm so glad you use this word relevant too, because this has come up in our world often. And I totally agree that in terms of progress in that direction of more inclusive programming, et cetera, that was happening actually before we hit the pandemic, but the pandemic just basically poured gasoline over a fire. I'm excited about that in a way. We needed something. I don't know, shake us up maybe a little bit in the music community. When this whole pandemic thing happened, I think everybody immediately went to music as comfort. Yeah. When you look back, social media became flooded with at-home concerts, which suddenly gave us a glimpse of our favorite artists in their own space performing, which we've never seen before, in their living rooms, on their couches, playing guitar. All these really personal, vulnerable moments, which I think in some ways drew us in closer to them. All the Broadway shows like Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen putting these little virtual videos together. And I think in a way, the pandemic kind of reminded everybody, we've really been taking this for granted. Yeah. We've been just kind of assuming that these orchestras and these shows are just going. And it's no big deal if I don't go. And then suddenly you couldn't go. It got taken away. And I think it actually increased the demand. I was just at Broadway. I went and saw a show this past weekend. My son had a soccer game games up in New Jersey and New York. So we went up to see Wicked. The crowd was the intensity and and the thrill was just so amazing to see it. Times Square felt electric. And so I think if we handle this right, we really could see an incredible golden era ahead of us if we tackle it the right way. Yeah. That's great, Brian. This kind of ties back to your writing, actually, because I feel like writing for young people and you can speak to this, maybe there's a little more freedom to write in a more progressive way. I've spoken to a whole lot of people, and you may be the first person ever to ask me this question about writing for young people and having more creativity, being able to be more progressive. You've stunned me, Liz. I am stunned. (laughs) I 
don't know whether to be proud or feel bad. I, I don't know how to be a stunned trumpet player and feel either. I don't know if that, what you do, right? It's so foreign. Right, it is. Everybody always says, oh, it's so limiting and you're writing for younger players. So there's all these restrictions and there's all that. You're the first person to ever say, like, you're just trying to create something unique for these younger kids. And that's exactly what I try to do. When you're looking at people that write for younger players or for anybody, really, there are sometimes two main approaches. And the one is, wow, this really took off. This piece was huge for me. I'm going to try to ride that wave and try to do something like that again and try to get another one out there. And so that's one way. And I think that can generate a lot of success for like a year or two. And then you're gone. Mm. You're completely gone. My approach always when I'm writing for really any level, especially for younger players, I always ask myself, like when I came out with Beethoven Lullaby, which is one of my most famous pieces for really, really young string players, or let's take another one. Let's take Forever Joyful. That may be a better one. You know, put that piece out there. And then a lot of people said like, oh my gosh, I love that piece. Can you do something similar to that? And I said, no, I've already done that. That's done. Oh, I love that. And so now my question is, what can I do that I haven't done? What's different? What's new? So the creative process is something that's different for everyone. And you've written a lot, a lot of music, and you're very well published and very in demand. Have you ever written something or gone in a direction where you just weren't sure how it was going to be received? You were a little nervous to put it out there because you were like, oh, I don't know if people are going to like this, but you just went with what you were feeling at the time? Yeah, I think as an artist, we're all trying to find that balance between the crude truth that I want to do this for a living, which means that I have to make money and I have to be able to provide for my family. I've got to be able to survive. Mm. And so there is that reality, but there's the just as significant reality that if I don't do things that are artistically fulfilling for me, I'm going to burn out. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to tailspin probably just as easily, if not easier, than if I just wasn't making any money. Mm-hmm. We've got to treat both equally. And so there are definitely pieces that I don't know if I'm even going to publish this piece or not. But maybe they have for me a lot of internal significance or just artistic merit. I take great pride in that. It's always finding that balance because we've got to keep ourselves going, yeah, financially. But if that artistic side of us dies, then it becomes just another gig and you might as well do something completely different that'll make you a whole lot more money. The last thing in the world I want to do is trying to be inspiring other people, trying to be emotionally engaging other people when I'm completely disengaged myself. Mm -hmm. So it's a balance between the two. We've all had conversations with our colleagues who get to a point where they're like, I just don't even know that what I'm doing is even worth it anymore. This is a hard enough way to make a living. Why not make a living doing something that's more secure and you check it in or work to live? And I'm not even knocking people who have jobs that they're not passionate about because people can have a career in something that isn't their favorite thing in the world to do, but it allows them to live life in such a way that they really enjoy it. There's no right or wrong answer there, but I think if we allow our musical careers or composing careers to become sort of this slog, then it stops having the same sort of specialness that it did to begin with. And really, why? (laughs) Can I give you the why answer? Yes. We can stop podcasting right after this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Why do I do it? Especially in the last year that it's been so hard. I imagine there are a significant number of people that listen to this who are still struggling, right? The orchestras are coming back slowly. The gig scene is not nearly what it was. There's a lot of question marks still on the table. Maybe they've switched careers. A lot of people have at least partially switched careers. The question is, why do I keep slogging away at it? And the answer 
is because I believe very, very strongly that especially in the last year, but it's been the last decade, but especially in the last year, our world is in such desperate need of beauty. Hmm. And we, as human beings, are in desperate need to be in contact with things that are beautiful. I view one of my responsibilities is, whether it's online in a virtual thing or whether it's in person, to create a space where people can go and suddenly all of that tragedy is turned off. All of that darkness and anger. And I think it's also important that we use this music to showcase what's wrong right now. If we're talking about social injustice, whether it's sexism or whether it's racial or whatever it might be, we owe it to the world to use our music in the ways that we can to highlight that and to teach people about that. I know so many people right now, so many little kids that all they've ever wanted was to be in band or be in orchestra. And there are those kids that are in school right now and we all know who they are. They don't fit in anywhere. Mm-hmm except when they come to the orchestra room before school or when they hang out in the orchestra room after school. It's the only place they have where they feel like this is where I belong. And so we've got to give them that space and not only that space to just exist and be in, but that place to be able to express themselves because if they don't express themselves, they're going to explode. Mm. For so many of them, it's a release. It's an emotional release. And when we talk about all this stuff going back to school, I think the arts are more important than anything in the world right now because that's the one place that all of us can go. Teachers, kids, parents. And we can suddenly just feel whole again, even if only for 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Maybe the orchestra doesn't sound perfectly in tune, but the kids are interacting with each other and they're listening and responding to each other. And somebody plays a wrong note and everybody laughs and it creates community. That creates that bond. Mm -hmm. And that's what these kids have been missing. Mm -hmm. That's why I do it. And I hope that's why all of the folks listening would do it. We hit upon this really early in the pandemic. This is my personal experience with wanting to come together to do this project in particular, was just the desire to connect. And I think Robin, who is one of our early guests, said it best. She's a nurse, but she's like, I don't feel like music or nursing is my calling. I feel like connection is my calling. And I can do that through music and I can do it through nursing. And music is like a universal language. It's a great, easy way to connect because I don't know very many people who don't like music at all. It really is a way to speak on these challenging issues in a way that everyone can hear and not instantly turn off when you don't agree with it. Yeah, absolutely. I felt myself getting actually really emotional when you were talking about that, Brian. I I was that kid. That was my safe place. Mm -hmm. No question about it. Same. Also what you said about performing. It's not important if it's perfect or not. What is perfect? This value of giving people a sense of comfort, a sense of freedom, a sense of joy, a sense of connection through music and being committed to doing it. It's just the most succinct way I've heard describe our purpose as musicians and as writers of music. It was just very lovely. And you just put it in such a great... And we lose sight of this. Mm. We lose sight of it as professional musicians. To go back to writing for young people somehow is more limiting than writing for professionals. Well, that concept, in my opinion, probably comes from professional musicians. We've talked about this recently. At some point, we all kind of had that feeling about music that the best stuff was written by the guys who were 200 years old and there's nothing else that can be written, which is just so, so silly. 
But everybody alive now, we have things that we have to say. Yes. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what we're talking about, right? Yes. And they're different things than what Beethoven had to say. I have these composers in the Romantic and the Baroque and the Class, all of that. I have a great appreciation for them. But at the same time, when I have access to somebody who I can call or email and get an understanding of why did you write this? What are you trying to convey? How profound that is on my performance and my understanding when I conduct, when you have access to all these people and what an incredible way to create these connections. Okay, so to bring this to possibly some of the most contemporary things that you do, can you take us through what happens when somebody commissions something and what's the creative process like for that? How do you get inspiration? Yeah, it changes. I used to try to write every piece the same way. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to get on the computer and I'm going to get into my notation program. right? And then I kind of realized that composing is very much like playing an instrument. There are days that all of us as musicians would wake up and we would pick up our instrument and we would play for like three minutes and we would just, I wish I had an audition today because I would crush it. I'm just feeling like a million bucks. And then there's those other days that you pick up your instrument and you're like, do I even play this instrument? (laughs) What is this thing that I am holding? (laughs) And why does it not feel like what it should feel like? Well, composing is very similar for me. There are some days that I will sit at the computer and be like, I'm going to put this into and nothing happens. The piece doesn't want to be written that way. I got to try a different way. And so I might go to the piano and I might write things down by hand. And then there are other times that that won't work. And actually the piece that I'm working on right now was one of them. And so I had to start sketching by hand at the table. No piano, no computer, no nothing. Just me, pencil and paper, which is still my favorite way to write. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I still love doing that. And so that part, the technical process changes. And sometimes it evolves. Sometimes I start writing on paper. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I know exactly where I'm going. And then I just try to keep up with the idea. Mm. So that's great, too. In terms of the inspiration, it depends on the group. Some people are very specific, right? We're opening up a new orchestral hall. We want you to write a piece to honor that. Or we had a student pass away. And we want you to help write a piece. Like, I just did a piece. I'm actually going to conduct it. Any of you that are Midwest, come see the Perrysburg Orchestra. I'm going to be conducting them at Midwest on a piece called Oliverian Fantasy. And it was a piece written for a kid named Oliver Bartell, who was down in Vero Beach High School in Florida, and just died in his sleep his sophomore year of high school. They think he had a heart defect. They think he probably had gotten up for a minute to use a restroom and immediately just boom, instant. And the crazy thing about it, you want to talk about inspiration. So they were online last spring, like everybody was online, one of the projects that they had done was a composition assignment where he had everybody in the orchestra write a melody. And so he sent me Oliver's melody and said, can you do a fantasy on this? And I wound up writing an entire fantasy based on the melody that this kid wrote. Oh my goodness. And so sometimes the inspiration is very clear. Mm Mm-hmm. And that goes back to the whole, why do we do it? Why are we pushing through and doing everything that we're doing? Because here's this kid's parents who he was an only child. Here they are trying to process this whole thing. And when they found out about this commission, they were posting how excited they were. Suddenly, this became a point of joy for them. Oliver had been trying so hard to get into the top group. And this was going to be the year that he would have made the top group. Mm Mm-hmm. And when they heard the piece, they really felt like he became the top group. And so in a way, that gave them closure. That's a great example of not only inspiration, but again, answering that whole why. It's to make the impossible situation possible. 
And sometimes they just say, hey, write whatever you want to write. Just do whatever you want to do. And sometimes there's something that I really feel passionate about that I might explore. Sometimes I will just start writing. It's kind of what I'm doing right now. I'm writing this big piece for the UMW Philharmonic down in Fredericksburg. It's their 75th anniversary and they wanted this like 20 minute long full orchestra piece, which I'm in the middle of right now. It's a combination of student and community. The inspiration became this idea of here you have people from different walks of life, some that are in the world of college, some of which are in local high schools but are still playing in the group, and then community members, which are either semi-pro players or even pro players. That's like a microcosm of the world right now. You have all these different people from different stages of life and different parts of life who are able to come together in a very short amount of time, do something incredibly beautiful and together. And I just thought, man, isn't that a great example for how the world could be run? Mm, it's so good. I am working my way through this book called Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. It's all about the creative process as well. She talks about how creativity and fear are these two things that kind of go side by side and that you can't put yourself out there in these ways without that very naturally physical experience happening to you because of the way our brains work. You know, it's just something that happens. And so she has this whole suggestion of how you deal with that fear. And I love that you just make the decision to write that you just want to write. It's funny you should mention the fear thing because that's a very real thing. And I think it's important for all of us to remember that sometimes, oftentimes, when you put yourselves in those moments where you're really nervous and really fearful and terrified, that can be the moments of the most tremendous amount of growth that you can experience. Mm -hmm. Yes. I look back just before the pandemic, I was premiering a piece with the army band and it was a piece called Love and Light. It was about a lieutenant in the army who had to deliver her daughter who had passed away. So it was a stillbirth. And so I'm writing a piece for a lieutenant in the army who had gone through this tragic experience and it was being premiered by the United States Army Band. I was terrified. Who am I to even touch this subject and the emotions that you're playing with. And the only reason I, I thought was because she really wanted me to do it. She really wanted me to do it. And I felt like, well, that's why. And that became a massively transformative experience for me. But boy, was I terrified. I mean, completely terrified. I think just writing for the army band alone, but it turned out to be an incredible experience. So again, sometimes your biggest moments of transformation are going to be when you take that little leap of faith. And sometimes you're going to take the leap and you're going to fall and you will now know more, which gives you a head start when you get back up. And eventually, even if you fall five times, you'll leap and you're going to land mm -hmm. and you're going to land in a great place. And you'll look back and say, like, I'm so glad I did it. I'm so glad I did it. Got some bruises along the way, but it was worth it. Yeah. I heard a quote by Scott Adams, who's the one who wrote Dilbert, and he said, creativity is allowing yourself to make mistakes, and art is knowing which ones to keep. That's beautiful. Uh, I love that. I love that. And I think there are many people out there who, whatever the creative outlet might be, it might be writing music, it might be performing music, it might be writing a book, it could be any number of things. There's a desire somewhere in there to do it. But the fear of failure or the fear of not being able to do it is overwhelming and prevents people from taking that chance because I think it's easy to make the assumption that when you see someone successful at it, they don't have that fear. Right. They just go for it and then it works out and everything's great. But everybody has that fear. That's a physiological response to doing something that's uncomfortable and putting yourself out there 
at least in a very individual way, is uncomfortable. So I think exposing that it's true for everybody, no matter what they're doing and how successful they may appear, that everybody goes through that. And building up that resilience to fall several times sometimes before you land, it's worth repeating. So let's go ahead and put it all out there. Let's do it. Okay. People may listen to this and say, man, he's so successful. And even in a pandemic, he did all the Zoom things and he did all this. And of course, now I've hit about the pinnacle of my career because I'm on viola centric. <laughs> it's all downhill from here, man. It's, it is all downhill, right? <laughs> Next thing I'm going to be on is, I don't know, like the contrabass, contraband, whatever they're going to call it. Trumpet podcast. Uh, the trumpet podcast. <laughs> <laughs> The problem with that is that I view myself more as a conductor. Oh, interesting. That's really interesting. If you were to ask me which one I would drop, I would drop composing in a heartbeat. Oh my gosh, you guys heard it. This is hot take right here. Yeah, oh no, absolutely. Without even question. The reason why is because I've always been a trumpet player my whole life. And because of that, I've been a performer my whole life. And while I was playing, I was writing music. And I love writing music. I was moving up this composition ladder much, much faster. However, there was no way for me, nor did I have any desire to ever separate myself from the performer Hmm. and so the perfect synergy was when I decided to fuse the performer side of me with the composer side you got the creative side on one side and then you've got the performing on the other you fuse the two of them together and you get the conductor and that became like my ultimate version of me Mm -hmm. that's why I say that I would stop writing in a heartbeat it makes so much sense to me knowing you and now putting it together I'm like obviously I have to be on stage I have to be it's just where I feel like I belong But I want to go back for a minute. Yes, please. And and I want to get very real. When we were talking about fear, I had started this whole thing by saying, you know, people listen to this and they say, oh, he's so successful and he's worked his way through the pandemic and it's not been a big deal. And I think it's really important for all of you listening, like every single one of you, that I have had a lot of them and I'm still having them bad days. Okay. Yeah. There are days that I wake up and I'm on top of the world. Yep. I wake up. Things are great. I'm inspired to write a piece. I get a call to do a gig and I know it's going to be great. And all state's coming up and boom and everything is just fantastic. I get to go to a kid's soccer game and life is on the top of the world. And then there's other days where like my crown achievement was like I got out of bed today. Mm-hmm. I managed to get out of bed. And I don't think we talk about that enough. No. Because there's so many people that listen and they're like, okay, here's Liz and Steph and they've got a podcast going. They're talking about all these things that they're doing. They're playing with like local artists. They're doing all this stuff that they're doing. What's wrong with me? Why can't I get it together? And the reality is that there's a lot of days that I can't get it together. There are weeks that will go by that I'm just like trying to barely figure out how to function. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong. I love being a dad. I'm a dad first. I'm a husband first. But there are those weeks that go by where I'm like, all I do is drive my kids to school. I pick up my kids from school. I take them to soccer practice. I pick them up from soccer practice. I go to games and I help them with their homework and I make sure they eat dinner and I go put them to bed and then I just wake up the next morning and I do the whole thing again and I feel like I have no sense of self whatsoever. Mm. And it's okay to acknowledge that. It is absolutely okay to acknowledge that because on the surface, it seems like I'm wildly successful. And I'd like to think that I am pretty successful, but it doesn't come without these other things that all of us are going through. And I want to make sure everybody understands that there's even in a non-pandemic situation, 
the most terrifying thing that I ever go through every time is a commission. When I start a commission, you're looking at a blank piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And there's somebody paying you a pretty decent amount of money that's saying, hey, Brian, I love everything that you have written. And I know that what you're going to write is going to be amazing for us. There's not even doubt. So here's a blank piece of paper and a check. Can't wait to see what you're going to do. Okay, love you. Bye. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. It is absolutely hard. So you do have to have relatively thick skin. You have to have a big heart. And you got to realize that some days you're just not going to do really well. I just wanted to let everybody know that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Because a lot of you are like, look, I'm, you know, trying to gig and it's not happening. And I'm done. I'm done. Yes. I don't care anymore. Yep. And no, you should care because we need you out there, folks. I wish we would get over this notion that if you're not in a professional full-time symphony orchestra, that you haven't made it. That's not true at all. Mm-hmm. If you are playing and you are making money and you're able to support yourself, you're a full-time professional musician. You are. Mm-hmm. And you've got to be able to allow yourself to have the room to accept that and then grow from it and let the career blossom. I really, really appreciate you talking about having those bad days because everyone who's listening to this is going to relate. And I think it's really important to know that your success isn't just one day of your life. You can't define yourself by however many days you fail. It all comes together in a package and it's all about you know, getting up the next day, seeing what it's like and trying again. And if there's one thing that I've learned Having gone through all of this, number one, it's reinforced my immediate tribe around me and how much I rely on them and how valuable they are to me. In addition to that, it is also reinforced. I mean, by this point, most of us now have experienced that first gig. And whether technically it was the most profound gig of your life or not, I think very few of us can doubt the emotional intensity of that moment. That is a gift. One person I heard, they said, don't ever waste a pandemic. What do they mean by that? Don't waste a crisis. Use it. And for me, this crisis has meant every time that I make music, I'm going to make it more intensely than I've ever done before. Steph, you know, when I get onto a podium, I'm very passionate always. But suddenly now that's no longer good enough. Mm -hmm. It's got to be more. I've got to prepare more. I've got to show more. I've got to feel more. I've got to inspire more. I've got to rock people's worlds more. I've got to get kids to believe in themselves more. I've got to get audiences feeling more. And that's a gift. It's a superpower. Mm. And I think all of us have been left with this superpower that as this pandemic hopefully continues to recede, we can't let that superpower recede either. It is our connection with the intensity of the music that we make. Yeah, I can't thank you enough for being so honest about that vulnerable piece of bad days and good days. And it's very timely in my own life, Stephanie knows. I had about a two to three week period recently where I was just having just, I would say, a total breakdown of confidence of any kind. You know, it was just like internally, everything felt off. And I know that there's a facade of just like constant flurry of success and activity going on in my life. And it feels vulnerable, but also good to share that in our forum that you guys like, (laughs) I know I don't feel confident all the time. There's often times that I don't feel good. And there are often days that the only thing I can do is get out of bed and Mm -hmm. do the stuff that I have to do to get through the day. And that's just human. I don't know. What about you, Stephanie? 
Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I totally relate to what you were saying, Brian, about just getting up, making sure my kids are up, getting them. I mean, this week we came back from work, which was like a flurry of activity and excitement. And we came back. And then the last two days have been the most mundane of existence. <laughs> it's been getting my kids up, making sure they had their lunch, doing things I need to do during the day. Like you said, they get home, they go to Girls on the Run or whatever it is that they're doing, and I make dinner and we go to bed and I'm in bed by 1030. <laughs> yep. Right. Well, and the thing is, I think we go from those moments where suddenly it's like, I'm back in my element. Yes. Yeah. I'm doing it. And then I don't want to say you get dragged back because we all search for balance in our lives, balance of family and personal versus professional. But right now, I think we're just hyper aware of when we're not working. Like right now, I'm about a month to a month and a half at home. And suddenly that doubt, it's like, wait a minute, nobody's having me out. Am I relevant anymore? And that's what we all went through for the last year. Mm -hmm. And damn it, yes, I am relevant. Yep. Not because of me, but because of what I'm trying to bring to the world. So you got to remind yourself about that. But sometimes the doubt wins. And those are the days that it's hard to get up. But you know that you're going to get back up the next day. And eventually, I don't care how long that's going to linger. Eventually, I will win. Eventually, I will get up and that will be gone. And I will find my way. And I will persevere. I will gig. I will make the world better. I will bring beauty into this world, damn it. And so be it. I will win. <laughs> so good. Also, I wanted to ask, you mentioned how important family is and that you identify as being a husband and a father. And you also talk about your reasons for why you keep doing what you're doing. This is just a personal curiosity. Do you have core values for yourself? Have you done that kind of work before? I absolutely do have core values for myself. And what I will say is that I've listened to, we all have interviews with countless number of incredibly successful people who are divorced multiple times or it might be very happily married but they go back and they say like yeah i just missed so much with my kids but now now that they're older i've reestablished that relationship like all those things and one thing that i decided a very long time ago i said look when i look back at my life and this is pandemic and everything when i look back I do not want to say I wish I had had more time. I wish I had been more involved. I wish I did more of this. My kids right now are 12 and 15. And if you were to say to me today, stop and rewind, would you wish you could have done it differently? My answer would be no. I have sacrificed. I mean, at some point, you got to put your actions where your words were. I had a performance in Carnegie Hall. I skipped it because it was my son's first birthday. My first son's first birthday and I knew I'll have more performances in Carnegie Hall. There'll be another one. I will not ever get another first birthday. Mm -hmm. Does he remember it? No. Does my wife remember it? Sure. Do I remember it? Absolutely. And does he know that I was there now at the age 15? Sure he knows. Sometimes I got to realize like this is a great opportunity, but... I get one shot at this whole dad thing. I get one shot at this whole husband thing. I get one shot at so many of these different things. And I'll have the rest of my life to go to Carnegie Hall. So good. I love that exercise of thinking ahead. Five years from now, if you look back on this moment, how do you want to have handled that moment? Mm -hmm. Because especially in our business, you do feel that pressure of that instant opportunity. And you don't want to worry that that opportunity is going to somehow, you know, it goes away and it never comes back or whatever that might be. It's just, yeah, it's great. 
Oh my gosh. Well, this has been so fun. Yeah. I'm so, so glad that you said yes when I pressured you to be on the podcast. You didn't pressure me. I love you. It was great. <laughs> no, I would have died in a heartbeat. Oh, this absolutely awesome to get to know you. And thank you for being so open and frank and for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for listening today. And thanks also to our season two sponsor, Arkrest. Another thanks to Alto Clef Gifts, where you can purchase viola-centric shirts and mugs and a variety of other fun items featuring our beloved Alto Clef. You can support our future episodes by supporting our sponsors through our PayPal link or Venmo and by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And please consider sharing your favorite episodes with your music-loving friends. Our episodes are produced by Liz O'Hara Starr. The Viola-centric theme music was written and produced by J.P. Wogerman and is performed by Steph and myself. Thanks again for listening. Let's talk soon.